This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Uh, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, Mr. Zach uh, Leary. He is a podcaster, blogger, futurist, uh, deeply interested in spirituality. Uh, he has a podcast, which uh, I would highly recommend. It's all happening. And uh, Zach, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on and speak with us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast recently. Yeah, that was good fun. I hope you had a good time. I did. I did. Um, people love it. I've been good feedback. <laughs> Zach, um, we want to talk about your, your current work and all the things you're into. And um, But I thought we'd begin uh, with a dare I say it, flashback um, <laughs> to, to your early life. You are the uh, adopted son of uh, Timothy Leary, who most of our listeners will be familiar with, but most of them are familiar with the early part of, of Tim's life uh, before mm. you came along when, you know, when he was doing yep. psychedelic research and with uh, then Richard Albert, Albert who's, who would become Ram Dass and you know, their whole adventures in the 60s. Um, maybe you can give us a, a bit of a background on that and your, your relationship growing up with uh, an illustrious uh, father and his uh, colleague Ram Dass, whom I'm, I know you've gotten to be close to. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's funny at the time when I, you know, I, I could hear an intro like that and kind of, you know, hear the setup for, you know, who, who my dad was. But it's funny, you know, growing up, um, you know, it took me a long time to really realize uh, who he was and what he was famous for. Like when I was a kid, when I was uh, just like a child, it was kind of like a strange sensation. Like I, I knew he was famous, but I didn't know what he was famous for. Mm. I just, he kept going off to do like these college lecture tours and, you know, and he would put out books and people to people always seem to hold him in great reverence. But like when you're a child, you don't really get, get like the, the level of that. I was like, Oh, this is sort of strange. Like, what, what does he do? Because he's not on the television. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't really know. And then it wasn't until, um, you know, I would probably say uh, eleven, twelve, thirteen, somewhere in there, where I, it kind of started to take hold. Where I, um, you know, uh, I, I really started to understand the the notoriety and, you know, for lack of a better word, but kind of the infamy and the controversy around him. Mm. Uh, and then that kind of, you know, started to seep into my consciousness and I thought it was just, you know, it was, it was so amazing. And I started reading some of his books myself. Um, yeah. And it was just, it was just such a great, um, really rich and diverse and, uh, intellectual and, uh, heart opening and, uh, expansive open-minded culture to grow up in. You know, I grew up in this household that was full of just these amazing characters and these amazing personalities and these amazing minds and these amazing thinkers kind of coming through the house all of the time. And, uh, and yeah, Ram Dass was, was one of them, uh, no doubt. And, uh, yeah, my earliest memories of Ram Dass are just, just so amazing. I mean, he was the, the, he shined so bright, like nobody I'd ever, ever seen before. 
Um, and I remember that vividly from when I was a kid. It was this guy. Who is this guy who's just beaming and smiling all the time? What <laughs> is he doing? You know. Um, and was this in so, L.A.? Yeah, this is in L.A. Yeah, in in uh, Laurel Canyon and then Benedict Canyon. Mm-hmm. In the seventies, you eighties, know, seventies, eighties, and to the mid nineties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to ask you. So, go ahead. Yeah, no, those are good. Just good, good times and. I remember it fondly, very, very fondly. Uh, Zach, you were obviously exposed to all types of uh, spiritual practice and spirituality and uh, way, way ahead of uh, sort of the curve in terms of what is popular and, and mainstream now. And, and it seems from what I've read about you that uh, your path is uh, an area that you and an area you have great, great interest in is bhakti yoga. Uh, tell us a little bit about bhakti yoga and what of all the things you were exposed to, interested you most in bhakti yoga? Well, um, yeah, for sure. You know, but at first I sort of want to want to notate, yes, I was exposed to, um, you know, the path of bhakti uh, pretty early on, but it didn't take until uh, much kind of later into my adult life, I, or at least not in a formal way. Um, when I was kind of when I was younger and, and a teenager, you know, I was exposed to it and read a lot of literature, and uh, <clears throat> I got exposed to the Bhagavad Gita when I was really, um, uh, you know, a young teenager and just thought it was fascinating. But I never, you know, as far as kind of the practice of bhakti goes, I never really had the discipline or or the focus until a little bit later. Um, you know, I was a deadhead when I was a teenager, and I was just kind of wandering around, and and my parents. Um, themselves, my mom and dad weren't really, um, they weren't spiritualists kind of in the formal sense of the word. I mean, they had great reverence and appreciation, I think, for a lot of these practices and traditions, but they weren't really practitioners themselves. I would say my dad was sort of like, he was a yogi, but of another of another sect <laughs> of, a, of a kind all his own. So he, he didn't really like subscribe too much to... Um, uh, to organize practices, and he kind of had a an aversion to the guru system as well for a variety of reasons. So, um, so needless to say, it didn't really take on me until later. Uh, and then when it did, sort of, kind of start to seep into my my daily life, um, it was just kind of like this this journey of kind of coming full circle. What kind of happened was I started listening to Ramdas talk on tape and CD kind of over again, just uh, on my own and sort of reading some of his books. And I was like, Oh my God, these are just, these are so fantastic. And I kind of thought to myself, wow, you know, I know him. Why don't I go see him? <laughs> it's, like, uh-huh. it's, it's pretty, I was like, it's all these years. And like, I don't spend enough time with him and I know him. I should take advantage of this. And then, uh, and then I did. And then, and then I really think um, it was kind of the combination of that, and uh, I started getting um, really into asana as well, and kind of um, you know going in deep into my own personal asana practice, and the combination of all of those things, and kind of reawakening my love for the Bhagavad Gita and some of my earlier exposure to uh, to the Hare Krishna movement and things like that. The whole combination of all of this kind of reignited my my bhakti path, which is. Uh, yeah, it's still my primary practice today. Um, I'm, uh, Zach, I, I'd like to go back a little bit to um, Ramdas and and yep. Dad. Um, it was 
because you alluded to it when you said, you know, your dad was always an iconoclast. And uh, I have to say, I met him once or twice when I moved to L.A. And um, um, the, the divergence paths that um, the two colleagues, the two Harvard colleagues, psychedelic researchers, uh, started to take from the late 60s or early 70s on has always fascinated me, and I, I sort of saw them as two uh, um, archetypes of an era. Um, and you alluded to your dad not having, uh, being very fond of the guru system or formal practice, whereas Ram Dass became quite the bhakta and uh, quite the devotee of, of Neem Karoli Baba, who you know, to this day, he, he refers to as his Maharaj and, and, and yep. his guru. And I wonder about how that was between the two of them and how that might have, the, the, those points of view might have affected their relationship, uh, their conversations. I, I would give anything to be in on the conversations. Mm -hmm. You probably, you know, <laughs> crawled or bottled into when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I did, uh, and there was also some just great, um, you know, teenage moments as well, like really as my kind of my formative years. So some mm. just great evenings with the two of them when I was really kind of starting to uh, understand their respective points of view. And I was just, you know, 16, 17 years old when you're just in that prime curious teenage state and just kind of watching them jab at each other and just fantastic stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, there's this expression that um, Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead always says about himself. Uh, he calls himself pathologically anti-authoritarian. Mm. Um, and my dad was very much the same way. And this you know, if you kind of go into the pathology of it and just, you know, go deeper and deeper and deeper and kind of back to his, his, his childhood. And he just kind of led a life to where he was um, kind of always rebelling. You know, he was always kind of like the, the Irish rascal leprechaun, right, leprechaun sort right. of, yeah, the leprechaun mm -hmm. rebel guy who was, you know, I mean, even, you know, he got kicked out of West Point. You know, mm. when he was, there he was trying to conform and then he got kicked out for, <laughs> you know, for being a rebel. And it, so it was like, you know, this pattern followed him over and over and over again. And then um, as the 60s kind of started to roll around and the psychedelic movement became, um, well, for him, it kind of morphed into becoming like an outlaw movement, yeah. you know, where, mm -hmm. so that was not something he signed up for. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of people will say and will challenge me on that and saying, well, he sure jumped on the bandwagon when, <laughs> yeah. when it came, when it came rolling, like he really enjoyed being the outlaw. Um, and, and that's true. I, I, I would say that's true, but you know, so he constantly had this juxtaposition. He constantly had this anti-authoritarian streak and there he was, you know, kind of following the psychedelic path and then, you know, very high levels of what we call authority were, um, were coming down on him. So it was just kind of that, you know, that way of thinking that, that, that thread of just sort of existing in the world. So when you kind of come across the guru system, 
um, it just felt like an like an authoritarian trip to him. Mm-hmm. I don't think he really. I don't think he really got it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but did, but he, then again, did he think that Ramdas had sort of swallowed the Kool Aid? Yeah, absolutely. He, when 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 Ramdas first came back from India, you know, Timothy was just. You know, he's kind of rolling his eyes. It's like, oh God, here we go. What, what, what's this shtick? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there is a but to this. I think over the course of you know the next two decades, uh, you know, Timothy did develop a tremendous respect and admiration uh, and appreciation for Ramdas, not wow. Richard Albert, but for Ramdas. <laughs> you know, for his path and really understood the sincerity of it um, and had a great amount of respect and, and reverence for it. I think it really, um, you know, it, it took time to sort of heal that, wow. uh, that, yeah. that cynicism in him, but it did, it did heal. So uh, Dennis, exact, let me, let me follow up yeah. with one question. Um, mm-hmm. I, we might, I want to invoke um, the movie you were involved with, that uh, mm-hmm. documentary that's still oh, yeah. around and available since we're talking about Tim and Ram Dass. Um, tell us quickly about Dying to Know, because uh, it's about those last days. Yeah, yeah. So there's this movie. It's called Dying to Know, Ram Dass and Timothy Leary. It's in theaters now, and if you go to dyingtoknowmovie.com, you can see, uh, you know, various cities and showtimes where it is playing. Um, and it's a movie that uh, this woman, Gay Dillingham, made. And it took her a really long time to make it, kind of like piecing it together over the course of 15 years. And it follows, um, well, the spine of the movie is uh, like this, uh, this interview of Ramdas and Timothy at, um, at our house in front of our fireplace. Uh, you know, about six or seven months before um, my dad died, and it's kind of like the last recorded mm-hmm. interview of the two of the two of them. And then the the movie kind of builds off of that and goes off in a whole bunch of fantastic directions, exploring the relationship in their life. It's really a fine movie, and I, I recommend anybody who's uh, on the spiritual path and any you know tradition or connection uh, really see it because I really think it like like your book, Phil, American Beta, kind of it fills in in the same way that your book does, at least for me, it fills in a lot of sort of these gaps in history that maybe mm. some people don't know that don't know about. And I'll endorse uh, that too, because yeah. um, I thought I knew a lot and, <laughs> and I probably, I probably do, but I learned things in the movie that I didn't know. It's very worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, I look forward yeah, to seeing is. the movie and again, uh, dying to know movie.com shows where it's playing. And I assume at some point, It'll be on Netflix, Amazon, whatever. I wanted to ask you, uh, Zach, yeah. uh, back in the uh, 50s, you know, 50, 60 years ago, there was a research being done on psychedelics, very serious research. And uh, your dad uh, and, and uh, Richard Alpert uh, very much popularized it. And then as a result of uh, it becoming sort of a recre- recreational drug, LSD, and the other psychedelics, <clears throat> sort of uh, research stopped on it and uh, the more serious aspects that uh, your dad was involved in uh, weren't pursued. Now, uh, in the last few years, very recently, uh, at New York University, at UCLA, at Johns Hopkins, uh, very serious research is being done on psilocybin. Dr. Anthony Bosis, head psychologist at, uh, uh, in that research project, and NYU was on our show. Uh, what, what do you think about that? What do you think your dad would have thought about that? And uh, where do you think they might go with it? 
Um, well, it's. It, I mean, we're living in a really we're we're living in a new a new psychedelic renaissance. We really are, you know, friend. For whatever reasons, um, you know, there's a lot of I guess uh, you know post twentieth century um, you know historians who who would kind of cite the data and the and the research about why psychedelic research sort of had to come to a halt. But for whatever reasons, it did. It kind of you know went on the back burner for. A long, long time, um, you know, and I think I was primarily because of the cultural revolution that came along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so, you know, it just was so intense and so all-encompassing, and you know, so much bigger than anybody thought it was going to be. That you know, it, uh, you know, one of the kind of evil stepchildren of the 1960s was the war on drugs. Uh, and it was just a, a very unfortunate outcome of, you know, of the, of the uprising and, you know, and like, uh, my dad always used to say, in order to understand the sixties, you must understand the fifties yeah. and the juxtaposition, the juxtaposition against the two and how it was such a radical change. Right. But, you know, keep in mind, you know, the people, the powers that be in the 1960s, and into the seventies were still left over from the fifties. Right. Like right. those people didn't change. Richard Nixon mm-hmm. still was president in 1968. So, you know, you still had this very draconian culture kind of left over within the power spots. So they created the war on drugs, which shut down all of the, the psychedelic research. Um, so, you know, it took us a while to kind of heal those wounds and, and you know, the work that, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Anthony Bosis at NYU and of course maps and John Hopkins and, uh, you know, Charlie Grobe here at UCLA and, you know, they've just, uh, really been so focused and so disciplined, um, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years and just staying, keeping focus on keeping it scientific, keeping it research based and filing the paperwork and getting the data and compiling the data and just, you know, taking the long tail, taking the long tail approach and, and it's worked and we're seeing some incredible results right now. So, uh, you know, I think obviously, um, you know, my dad would be extremely proud and, and, you know, uh, yeah, he just would be so proud. It's a fantastic time to be involved in the secular mm-hmm, movement. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's great to see. Yeah. Zach, um, to turn to your your current uh, pursuits and interests, um, somewhere along the line, as you said, uh, you got reintroduced to things you were exposed to as a kid, and and uh, became uh, engrossed in 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 the world of bhakti, um, and you learned a lot from Ramdas, and I'm guessing that you feel some connection to. Uh, Neem Karoli Baba, who was Ram Dass's, uh guru. Um, I do. And um, I find this fascinating. I wrote about it in American Veda. There are a lot of people your age and younger, much younger even, uh, who have a deep connection to Neem Karoli, who think of him as their guru, who never met him. Most of them were born, I don't know about you, but they were born after he passed. And yeah. um, and yet, 
you know, people make pilgrimages to, to the ashrams where Ram Das and others uh, would have been and so forth. Can, how do you, can you explain uh, to, to the listeners who Neem Karoli was and why, why this deep connection even long, you know, 40 years after he's gone? Yeah, and uh, you know, for, for the record, I'm I'm one of those people too. <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm uh, I consider myself to be a devotee, and and uh, he is my you know he is my my thought guru for sure. Um, you know, I've had other you know uh, teachers and in, in who are in the body and stuff who I consider or I hold in great reverence and stuff. But uh, Neem Karoli Baba is, is still my guru. Um, and I have made those treks to India many times and spent a lot of time in those ashrams myself. Um, you know, the best way that we can sort of, uh, you know, digest this and put it into terminology that sort of makes sense to like a listener or to try to kind of intellectualize it or just, you know, rationalize it in a way. It's just, um, you know, at the core of, um, you know, at, at the core of, of bhakti, you know, no matter who your guru is or what your practice is or what, you know, sort of deity you're kind of, you know, vibing with or anything exists a transcendental perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you might experience that in, um, you know, uh, like the Hare Krishna's experiencing, experience that in the chanting of the holy names and they're sort of brand of worshiping Krishna and Radha kind of creates this transcendental vibration. Shivites do it when they, you know, um, perform puja and, you know, get into some very primal sort of energy states that, you know, create the, 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 you know, love for, um, love and worship for, for Shiva and Shakti and things like that. And so, you know, just those, that, that sort of transcendental mystification vibration, sort of unspoken, not necessarily tangible form that is the mood of bhakti. Um, it just exists within Karoli Baba. And I think many people who kind of encounter um, his, his photograph or encounter some of his teachings and sort of that vibe that, uh, you know, Ram Dass and Krishna Dass and all the others kind of speak of, you can feel it yourself. Right. It is something that sort of, it is, hmm. it, it does come across, it does come through that sort of, um, you know, limitless, boundless field of unconditional love. It's a real thing, you know, mm-hmm. and trust me, when I was growing up and, uh, you know, I was not brought up in a household who would say things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not brought up to say, you know, here I am, a 42-year-old guy, uh, you know, who I... I, I worship a, a dead guy, an old man in a blanket who's been dead for 40 years, you know? <laughs> and there's no, there's no, like, you know, YouTube videos of him speaking very much right. or anything like no, that. Very, very, very little. Yeah, right. very, very few. It's just that, you know, he really was an embodiment of unconditional love. He was an, an embodiment of perfection. And when I kind of, think about his vibration or look at his photo. It's just, uh, it's, it's just a, a level of perfection that really resonates with me. And that, um, I know it does with a lot of other people too. And, uh, that's why he's, um, he seems to be alive and well, <laughs> it, it, that, <laughs> there's a whole new, yeah. Zach, along those lines, uh, on a daily basis, uh, do you, do you have time every day you set aside for spiritual practice 
And if so, what uh, does your spiritual practice entail? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I mean, generally, uh, my my mornings start um, with uh, some, you know, silent, you know, Vipassana meditation, about uh, 20 to 30 minutes worth. And then I do a little bit of singing. I sing the Hanuman Chalisa and some other prayers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Hanuman Chalisa is uh, pretty much a, a daily, daily practice for me. Um, and then I kind of, uh, read some prayers and, you know, read some, some scriptures and some, you know, some pages, some, some books and stuff. I kind of mix that part of it up every day, but, um, yeah, pretty much my meditation and, uh, singing and chanting the, the Chalice is my daily practice. Um, and then, yeah, it's kind of augmented with, with Joppa, uh, throughout the day, but, um, yeah, that, 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 that's pretty much it. Um, depending on how much how much time I actually have in the morning and, um, you know, how much I can actually set aside for myself or what time I'm waking up or, you know, like all the general material world obstacles that occur. Right, exactly. But, um, yeah, but, but yeah, those are the core. Mm-hmm. Now, Zach, you, since you mentioned Hanuman Chalisa, um, that was on my uh, agenda to ask you about, you're doing a workshop on the Hanuman Chalisa this month, which is, we're talking in October 2016. Um, tell us about the Chalisa. A lot of people have memorized it, and I, I hear it uh, being uh, chanted at different gatherings. It's, it's um, quite a comprehensive and lengthy uh, yeah. ritual. Uh, tell us about the Chalisa and what it represents and what its effects are. Well, the... Um the word Chalisa means 40 verse. Um, and, you know, some people don't know, but, uh, you know, other deities also have a Chalisa as well. There is a Durga Chalisa and a Ganesha Chalisa. They're just not, um, you know, they're not as held in uh, the, sort of the same sort of reverence as the Hanuman Chalisa is. And what it is, it's a 40 verse uh, Hindi prayer written by Tulsi Das in the 1400s. And it just, uh, it's kind of written in this tome that just espouses the glories of Hanuman. Um, and it does it kind of in a way that just, you know, it talks about like, um, the perfection of his physical nature, the perfection of his, of his powers, um, that he can sort of be and do anything that Ram needs. Can you, um, uh, and, let me interrupt a second, Zach, yeah. for, for listeners who don't know. Uh, who or what Hanuman is? Um, oh, okay. You can yeah. Explain that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, in the, um, you know, one of the great Indian epics of of which there, you know, there are many. There's the Mahabharata, which the Bhagavad Gita comes from, but there's also the the Ramayan, which is the great story of of Lord Ramachandra and Sita, his consort, and in the story of Ram. Um, the, the great epic journey of all of his trials and tribulations. Um, he gets into kind of a fierce uh, and kind of adversarial relationship with Ravana, who's a great demon who takes his consort Sita to the island of Sri Lanka. And, and uh, cause Sita is the most beautiful perfection of the female form, who's really just an aspect of Lakshmi. So Ram just goes on this epic journey to try to get Sita back. And the hero of the journey is Hanuman, who is the monkey god, who's half monkey, half man, um, who they say is uh, the son of the wind. 
and he's actually an aspect of Shiva who kind of takes form um, as the son of the wind and comes to help Ram uh, get Sita back and becomes real the real hero of the of the Ramayana. He's the real unsung hero of it. And uh, but but what's so interesting about Hanuman is, and then sort of the pantheon of Hindu gods and goddesses is Hanuman does not have a consort. Hanuman is not uh, you know weighed down by sort of the you know the ebbs and flows of the material world um, and dealing with consorts and kingdoms and things like that. Hanuman's entire purpose is to serve, is just to serve God, is just to serve Lord Ram. And, you know, his entire perfection and, his, and, and all of his being and everything that's important to him is just when he's serving God. Right. So, you know, the, they, you know the, the takeaway from that is that, um, you know, just to remember to serve. What can you do to express, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of um, shred of devotion today? And no matter what you're doing, you right. know, if you're cooking food, driving you. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you along those lines. Yeah, you mentioned Tol, uh, Tulsi Das. And uh, as I recall, I read the uh, Ramayana, but then I read uh, the Ramacharita Manasas, I think it's called, by Tulsi Das. And it was the same story, with, with, I have to say, a slightly different, uh, uh, more pleasurable ending in, in my perspective. But also, uh, it, was much, it was much, much more devotional. I couldn't, I, I picked up that book and I started reading it from the middle. I read it from the middle to the end, then I read it from the beginning to the end. And uh, it was really uh, the most profound scripture of that type I had ever read, but it had a more devotional, more bhakti, I would say, aspect to it than mm. the uh, three-volume Ramayana that I read that was wonderful, but but more dry. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that for sure. Well, I think at the time, you know, when, uh, you know, Tulsi Das kind of uh, reinterpreted that um, and, you know, wrote what, uh, what, what you're talking about, the, um, you know, at that time, there was kind of a great um, bhakti revolution going on in India, you know, um, you know, uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu kind of taking, you know, the holy names out from very exclusive elitist upper caste uh, homes and temples and bringing it out onto the streets. And so, you know, there was kind of this, this, this great bhakti revolution happening. And, uh, and I, I agree, so Tulsi Das is a, a, a real bhakta, you know, Mahanaman Chalisa was written in the the spirit of singing it in uh, a mood of bhakti you know so you're singing it with uh, the reverence of bhakti you know bhakti is kind of a mood if in anything you know and and it's and that practice is kind of done with in in a, in a mood and in a sense of devotion and um and i think you know tulsi das really wrote the hanuman chalisa with that in mind so when you know when you see people singing it like phil was talking about even here in America, all these people who are who are who are learning it, and it takes a while to learn. It's not it's not very easy. Um, you know, it's done with so much like pleasure and joy. It's such a joyful practice to see people doing, and um, and I'm really blessed that I've uh, you know gotten to help um, quite a few people now actually learn it and bring it into their lives and practices. And and I really just thank you know Maharaji and and specifically Krishna Das for for bringing me to it. Right. While we're while we're on the subject, Zach, um, people see uh, images of Hanuman, um, and you know they think, oh, it's the monkey god. And I know there are a lot of uh, Hindu children 
of Indian descent whose classmates tease them for worshiping monkeys. And, um, and you know, it, I know it sounds funny, but it's, it's very hurtful sometimes to those, those kids. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we have the, the, the story where Hanuman is a real character. We have the images. How do people in our modern world devotees like you and, and others um, understand Hanuman as a, a real uh, unusual character uh, in, in mm. history that lived as a character only in an in imaginative character in a story that serves mm. a purpose, you know, like we think of as mythology, mythological characters or mainly as a symbolic representation of the possibilities of devotion for, for everybody. Well, what is your take on that? Well, it's a great question, and I'm glad you've asked it. And uh, someone uh, asked me a, a similar question once recently, but sort of in a much more um, oh, kind of accusatory, almost derogatory tone, yeah. like, Wait, you really believe in flying monkeys and yeah, right. and, mm-hmm. and and blue guys who <laughs> why they're in the Wizard of Oz? Yeah, and <laughs> you know, and yeah, yeah, from a historical perspective, you know, I really don't know enough to to speak intelligently to it. But I will answer the question. Like if somebody asks me that, my answer is, well, what difference does it make? Mm. It, it, to me, it really does not make a difference mm-hmm. if Hanuman was a real thing or if Krishna was a blue guy playing a flute 5,000 years ago, it doesn't make a difference to my state of being. It's just what difference does it make? If like you like Phil, like you set up those three different possibilities that they're real historical figures, if it's just mythology or if it's symbolic representation that kind of creates a, you know, a a path of devotion, all three of those are still potent recipes for, for devotion for me. And let's just say, it is just mythology. I'm, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna take a, a stance on that. But let's just say, for the sake of conversation, it just is mythology. But then, so what? I mean, these myths are so powerful and so beautiful and so rich and so informative that they give. You know, there's enough meat there to sort of like you know build a spiritual path off of. You right, know? right. There's a, there's an. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like. That it works for me, you know what I mean, and I'm not going to get hung up on the, you know, the minutia of, uh, of of if it was real or not. But I do, I do also say like, um, and I, I maintain that in my own personal practice as well. It's not sort of like, um, you know, with uh, you know very hardcore militant Christians. You know, they're very, um, it's everything's taken very literally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <clears throat> and, you know, living in for, you know, a fearful God and a vengeful God. And, you know, Jesus said that and Jesus did that. And did that. You know, I don't really look at it like that. I kind of take a step back and I'm a little bit more playful with it. So I don't get hung up on dogma mm-hmm. and I don't get hung up on morality and, and things like that. Right, right. So it seems like I, it's, it's a really, int- it, it's, it's an intense <clears throat> discussion. I'm glad you asked the question. Right. Because yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, whether the story it. is true or not, it, if it inspires good things in you that that seems to be uh what what's most important uh we're sort of out of time uh but if okay. any other any final points that you'd like to make zach 
No, it's just it was great talking to you guys. We could do this all day. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, so we let, you have let, to come back. Yeah. Let's do the commercial thing uh, for a moment, and because I admire uh, Zach's podcast, tell us a little bit uh, quickly about uh, your podcast and, and what its um, mandate is. Yeah, so my podcast is called It's All Happening, and it really is about, um, well, my kind of primary two venues that I sort of exist in uh, within my kind of work and philosophy and what I write and talk about is spirituality and also technology and um, Mm -hmm. kind of, excuse me, a futurist and uh, involved with a lot of kind of technology consulting and things like that. So, yeah, I have on just a lot of uh, great people like yourself, Phil, to talk, um, you know, about spiritual stuff. And then I have a lot of technologists who are sort of like, you know, we get into big um, kind of discussions about, uh, you know, how technology can be used wisely to augment the survival of our of our species you know i think uh, we've kind of come to a crossroads to where both spirituality and technology have we've seen the goods and we've also seen the bads you know mm-hmm. so you know the, i think the podcast is really about the fusion of understanding the potential of both great great well thanks for that zach and uh, thank you guys we'll have a link to your to the podcast and and they can learn more about you and it when this is posted, right. and we look forward and to having you. Thanks. Yeah, we look forward to having you back on sometime in the future. Absolutely. Speaking of, have a great day. Great. Thank you. <laughs> All the best. Okay. Bye.